Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Guest is Dr. Lenny Echterling. Dr. Lenny Echterling is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. For 19 years, Lenny has been a member of a volunteer disaster team and has a strong belief in resilience, hope, and recovery. He is the co-author of Crisis Intervention, Promoting Resilience and Resolution in Troubled Times. Welcome to the show, Lenny. Yes, thank you for having me. Hi, Lenny. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Gloria. And you've written some uh, kind of bestseller uh, books in this field, which is kind of interesting. I think one of them, we don't have it down, but was, is for helping students in this area, right? right. Okay, yes, on thriving. Right, thriving, yes. yeah. So how did you get in, the f- in this field? Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, my interest in crisis and disaster, I think, happened when I was a child uh, living in Missouri next to Kansas. There was a tornado that came in, and just like the Wizard of Oz, came across my grandparents' farm and barn, and they were down in the fruit cellar praying as they heard the tornado come across. And we lived uh, in in the city of St. Joseph, about 50 miles away, and we were making this frantic trip up there because we knew there were tornadoes around and we had lost telephone contact with them. And when we arrived, the barn was gone, the house was uh, damaged severely, and yet there was my grandma and grandpa out there waving to us. And for me, that was just the picture of resilience. And we spent weekends after that helping to rebuild the barn and being up there. And I found this sense of family coming together and the community coming together in ways that I haven't read in the trauma and crisis literature. It was more of a portrayal of the victimization. And I felt there was something missing from that whole scenario. Yeah, we do. I mean, uh, with this news going 24-7, uh, the stories are, are ones of tragedy, aren't they? Not the resilience that people have. Well, well, and what's interesting about Lenny's story, Mom, is when we think back to our first guest, there's common themes in that in both of these stories, people are being of service to others and coming together as a community. Right. Yeah, our, guest, our previous guest uh, took a group of bereaved mothers to Africa, and they did service. Wonderful. So, and, and she talked about how much service helped them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's what we're hearing again, service. So you got in, and resilience, um, it's just gotten popular recently, hasn't it? The whole idea of resilience and recovery and, uh, you know, hope. and Well, especially in, uh, in psychology, uh, we for so long focused in on disorders. And everyone now is familiar with PTSD, and that's certainly... Say what that is, because our audience may not... Yes, that's a good point. It's post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's uh, been in the news, and, and it is a disorder that can affect uh, returning vets, for example, from Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, it can re- affect people after natural disasters, uh, trauma survivors such as rape victims and so forth. <clears throat> the... Uh, what we found in psychology is that we've learned to understand that disorder very well. It's, uh, it's, there are treatments available. There are certain symptoms. And yet, here's the encouraging piece about that, 
is that there was a survey done of a thousand people in the United States. Sixty-nine percent of them had had some traumatic event in their lives that would qualify for that diagnosis. They had the event. Uh, only twelve percent actually had the disorder. And so a number of us in psychology began to look at, well, what's going on with those 88%? How come they're getting by? Yes, exactly. And not to ignore the ones who have the disorder and need the treatment, but also to gain insight into the resilience of people. And so that's one of the areas we begin to study more and more are the strengths and the possibilities people have for resilience, for bouncing back. And, you know, uh, as a bereaved parent, I would guess that, well, I know, because I was in the field, um, I was working at a, a hospital in psychiatry at the time. My son was killed, and I will tell you, I had all the signs of post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, you know, and, and it was, and I believe that grief is a natural process. Yes. And, uh, and still you can have all those symptoms. I mean, uh, having that traumatic event happen to you, and, and you can have them for a while. Exactly, and it's not to take away from the pain and the anguish and the suffering. I know that, that we're pre-recording this interview uh, for some time in March, but uh, four days ago is the anniversary of when my brother was killed in a mountain climbing accident. Oh, wow. Three years ago, uh, February 19th. And, and I certainly went through all of those reactions of, of shock and uh, having flashbacks because I was on the phone talking to my sister-in-law as he was missing in this mountain and it was overnight and the rescue uh, people were out there searching for him. And so it was uh, a very, very painful time for me and my whole family. Were you surprised at the intensity? Oh, yes, yes, because here I am. I've read about this and I had... Uh, what I thought were some insights into the dynamics that were going on, and yet it certainly didn't prevent me from full throttle feeling that whole vortex of all of the anguish and pain. Yeah, that's what amazed me is how, uh, because I had worked with families and had just worked with somebody whose uh, child had been killed, and I said, oh, I I don't know what you're going through, but I think I have some things that can help you. Wow, did I ever not know. Yeah, right. Yes, and and at the same time, what was a powerful learning lesson for me was that we were able to come together as a family. And there was some research I found really intriguing when I revisited. It's by a social psychologist from University of Texas, James Pennebaker. He did a survey of people who, in the middle of studying their everyday communications, some traumatic event happened. There was a public you know, community-wide traumatic event. And instead of discarding the study, they decided to continue on. And they found that the use of the word I went down 12% after, from before the public trauma to afterwards. And the use of the word we went up 135%. And people weren't even aware of the fact that they were experiencing themselves as something bigger, as part of a family or a community or a society. And that's the kind of dynamic that I really began to appreciate that I wasn't alone and isolated. I was part of a family. That's so interesting, yeah. It is, and I think it's important for parents to reach out to their kids and to each other and just say, put it out there in in words and say, look, we're going to get through, this is a horrible thing that's that's happened to us, but we're going to get through this together as a family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
like you said, I think it's very comforting to know you're not in this alone. And that was such a comfort to me. And, you know, you use that word comforting, and that's a word I didn't use very much before this happened to me. You know, I use social support. I use uh, terms like that. But, boy, comfort captures it so much more powerfully. And that's how I felt, comforted. Now, tell me, I get a little bit annoyed with the mental health community that I'm part of Mm -hmm. because they act like there's something wrong with grief. Yes, and that's really sad uh, for a number of reasons. And one of those is that uh, I think some of this has to do with the fact that uh, the emotions that we've focused on when we've uh, looked at uh, problems have been those of anxiety and clinical depression and anger. And we haven't looked at the, you know, grief is certainly has a tremendous amount of negative emotions, but it also has uplifting, transcendental, positive emotions, too, of compassion. And amazing things happen. I mean, yeah. you have amazing people help you and and. Uh, amazing if you're open to it and that's why we call our foundation frankly open to hope because you may not have hope but if you're open to even the idea it can be uh, amazing how people come out to help you we'll talk a little bit about the death of a sibling well that was uh you know just a horrible situation it was my younger brother too and uh, Mm. i'm the oldest of uh, six and um i the last time I talked to him was on Valentine's Day. And what gave me comfort, again, we come back to that word comfort, was that uh, well, he li- lived in, near Seattle, and here I am way out in Virginia. And so, you know, we kept in close contact, and over the years, uh, whenever we would talk on the phone, instead of saying goodbye, we would end with saying, well, give my love, you know, to Jared and the children, and, and I love you too. And those were my last words to my brother. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was very, very comforting to me to know that uh, on Valentine's Day, which in our society we often portray as a romantic holiday, that this was a chance for me to express a fundamental filial love here, too, for my brother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great, wonderful memory. It's very strange to lose your younger brother. I, I lost my younger brother also mm. because we just assume that, you know, we will die before our younger yeah. brothers. Yeah, That whole, you know, this isn't right with nature to, you know, like a child to die before. Or, and my, my uh, mother, uh, bless her heart, a uh, very, very loving, peaceful uh, person going through this, you know, heartache and, and grief of uh, losing one of her children, mm-hmm. after the funeral, uh, some distant relative came up to her and said, oh, well, at least you have five other children. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my mother said, I, I wanted to punch her in the nose because it <laughs> right. doesn't matter how many other children there are. Denny is dead. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't matter how old you are either. I mean, my grandmother, I think, was in her 70s or maybe even older when her son died. And, you know, it's it doesn't matter. There's still something, that some order that should happen, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it violates the order of this. And that's where, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of service is such an important one because it, it makes meaning out of our suffering in ways where, uh, and this gets into an important concept I want to bring up, too. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. What we're now 
exploring and finding strong evidence for is PTG, it's post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic stress disorder is a very real and serious disorder that some individuals can develop after a traumatic episode. It often involves flashbacks or nightmares. The, the important piece of that is that it is so severe that it impairs their relationships to the point of, of uh, perhaps divorce or alienation, and it impairs their ability to work and to function and to get, find meaning in life. But all those things you may have if you just recently had exactly. a loss, too, right. as a normal part of the grieving process. Exactly. But so you will have nightmares, and you will have uh, flashbacks, and you will have uh, pain and anguish and suffering and confusion and difficulties in your relationships and so forth, and trouble coping, trouble doing your work. So I like to normalize these in the sense that you've talked about already, that this is a normal reaction to... Uh, oftentimes a very shocking traumatic event. And therefore, what I um, emphasize uh, is that the potential is also there, and we've got strong research on this, that on down the road, five or six years, if you do follow-up surveys, the individuals will report growth from that experience and how they coped with it, how they discovered the lessons that they've learned, like we've already talked about in our own personal lives. And I find it especially important in the United States where we emphasize independence. And, you know, July 4th is our day of independence, and that's okay, but I think we really ought to celebrate every other day as days of interdependence because mm-hmm. we are not alone in this world. And that's where we need to recognize that we can reach out to others for comfort as well. Absolutely, and you are not alone, and, and you can teach people how to help you with your grief, and you can and find you can people also, who can do it. You can, and also, I like the idea that resilience can be taught and learned. Yes, yes, and it really can be. We, early on in the research about this, we're going back 30 years uh, in resilience, it was thought, well, some people are born with it and others mm-hmm. don't have it. But what we've discovered over the years is that resilience, the ability to bounce back and even to grow are lessons that we can learn, that we can enhance, that we can build. And I find that very, very encouraging. And one of the ways that we go about doing that is to emphasize that as people deal with their emotions, that they are dealing with not only negative emotions, but they want to enhance their positive emotions, such as compassion, to deal with with the grief and suffering of others. That's why the uh, survivors who've been through grief are often the best resources to helping somebody else. Yeah, Heidi and I love uh, the organizations that have those matching peer support where they find people who have had the same type of loss and and Mm -hmm. match them up. Mm -hmm. And they're wonderful. And I I think of... uh, that, uh, there's this wonderful metaphor that somebody told me about the redwood trees out in California, which are hundreds of feet high, that the root system is only about five or six feet deep. And the way that they're able to stand up and withstand all the storms and the winds and the travails is that the roots intertwine with others. So it's like they're holding hands underground. And that's how they get through this. And I think that's what we need to recognize in ourselves is that we can be there as a helping hand to others and, in the process, feel supported, too. Uh, what a, a wonderful thought. And if you are 
newly bereaved, one of the things I always say, the person that you need to give the most helping hand to, the one you need to take most care of during those early days are you. Yes, yes. And let that others help you. That was a lesson for me. You know, I'm, I'm a trained helping professional. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And to accept help and to reach out and feel that wonderful sense of comfort and to, you know, my default uh, response is typically, uh, you know, I don't, that's okay, I can cover my classes, I can do this. And I learned, no, <laughs> you can't. And there are people out there who want to be of help. Right, give them the opportunity to help. Yes. Uh, letting yourself be vulnerable it is not easy when you're in a working situation, is it? Mm-hmm. So for the guys out there and the people who are working, it's not easy to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. well, I had that guy syndrome, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, now you worked at Virginia Tech, right, with the shootings there? Yes, uh, Virginia Tech is down the road a couple of hours from us, and I was part of the, the crisis team that responded after the shootings April 16th. Uh, one interesting thing that... Uh, evolved in that community is that 416 has the same meaning as 911 does for the United States. Mm-hmm. In Blacksburg at Tech, when you say 416, people know you're talking about that particular day. And that's one of the points about crisis that I like to emphasize is that it is an event that's often the end of one chapter of your life as an individual or a community or a university and the beginning of a new chapter. Mm-hmm. And what I saw down there, which was powerful for me, was that in spite of the horror, you know, the horrific uh, scenes and situations that students and faculty and staff were involved in, that there was a still this powerful sense of coming together and a determination of saying, we're not going to let one deeply troubled individual define who we are. We are going to define who we are. And that was powerful in terms of poetry that we heard, in terms of uh, people coming together, uh, clergy, professors, uh, wonderful examples of that. I talked to one person who coincidentally, a student whose first name is Heidi, who Mm. was uh, uh, in one of the classrooms where there were multiple deaths and injuries. And she's believes that the only reason she was saved is that somebody fell on top of her and bled on her head. Wow. And, and Cho, who was going around afterwards doing, a, you know, assassination-style uh, shooting, uh, passed her up. Wow. And she, uh, in, in terms of her faith, saw this as, you know, she'd been uh, saved by the blood of another mm-hmm. who sacrificed, mm-hmm. helped her. But she had... Uh, you know, she was passed out, and when she woke up, she was surrounded by all these strangers, the EMTs, you know, the uh, police and, and others who were there, and she said, I just felt surrounded by love after going through the hell of hate. Mm-hmm. And that was just transformative for her, that she was embarking on her survival story now. And that's one of the things that we like to emphasize when we promote and encourage how to learn resilience is that don't get stuck back in the victim story. That what you want to do is begin to narrate and share 
and give momentum to your survival story because that's where you can thrive. Oh, that's a, a great idea. Sometimes you ha- you have to get your victim story straight first. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so we work on that a little bit early and then yeah. move on to that survivor story I uh-huh. love. And I we'll- love that because I think often we don't embrace our survival story enough. Mm. Now, one of the things that I think communities do come together, but one of the things that I would say can also happen to people is then they disperse. Yes. And if you are feeling alone, you had a community at one time, you've dispersed, you need to re-find a community and going to the Compassionate Friends mm-hmm. or uh, checking with your local hospital or finding out some groups for those who, do, who like to do groups, and not everybody does. Um, do try to reach out again if if you are feeling isolated. Well, Lenny, it's time to close our show. I can't believe it. It's been great ah, having great. you on. Yeah. How, how do people get a hold of your website? And would they be interested in reading your book? And how would they get a hold of it? And well, it's available on Amazon dot com. Uh, it's it's uh, you know published by Prentice Hall, and uh, we also uh, you know people. I'd be happy to uh, receive the emails. Uh, I can give you my email address. Yeah, go for it. It's E-C-H-T-E-R-L-G at J-M-U dot E-D-U. And that would be the easiest way to connect with me. And I found it uh, it is wonderful to talk with both of you who have not only survived but thrived. (laughs) And I love the Compassionate Friends name because it's not grieving friends, it's Compassionate Friends. (laughs) And that, Mm -hmm. that emphasis upon... We have a positive mission that calls to us is so valuable. Well, thank you so much for being on our show, Lenny, and um, it's time to close our show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.